Hey everyone, welcome back to the Outcomes Rocket. Saul Marquez here, and today I have the privilege of hosting the outstanding Dr. Mark Fendrick. He is a professor of public health and also medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School. He's the editor of the American Journal of Managed Care and also serving as a director for the Center of Value-Based Insurance Design at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. So I'm privileged to have him here with us today. We're going to have a really fun discussion and his many years of experience in value-based design uh, and managed care. I think everybody's going to find it really interesting. So Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. So it's my pleasure to be here. Yeah. And before we dive into the work that you do and and the focus around value-based insurance design, Tell us a little bit about your inspiration for the work you've been doing it for a while. Yeah, you never want to be remembered as the person who's been talking about the same thing for 20 years, but I've become that person. (laughs) So as far back as undergrad, when I was aspiring to be a clinician, Mm -hmm. I understood that resources in healthcare are scarce, regardless of how much we spend, whether it be $100 or $3.7 trillion. And I've noticed over that 40 years of looking back on that experience is that most of the conversations around how much we spend on healthcare, percent of GDP, trillions of dollars, as opposed to how well we spend on healthcare. So the inspiration for me has always been, there's always been enough money in the U.S. healthcare system. So no one's arguing that we should spend 20% of GDP or $5 trillion a year. In fact, that's one of the kind of positive aspects of moving our work about reallocating healthcare dollars a little bit better. So I've been basically relying on the very simple premise of let's buy more of the good stuff that makes Americans healthier and pay for it by no longer buying those services that are not improving health in our country. Well said. And it's interesting when you look at it from that lens. And as we think through a lot of the you know managed care strategies in place, value-based care initiatives, which seem to be gaining traction, finally, you know, how would you say the research and the work that you do are helping the healthcare ecosystem? So that's a really good question. I I wish I were fee-for-service to answer that question, Saul, instead of being capitated, being confined to our short period of time. So (laughs) first off, as a practicing clinician, it's more exciting than ever in terms of what the options we have to uh, make individuals and populations healthier. I call this Star Wars science, and that ties very nicely to Outcomes Rocket. Mm-hmm. The issue, of course, is that for all the things that you, your listeners, and myself would deem to be essential in terms of improving health, all of those are underutilized for many, many reasons. And as we sit in the spring of 2021, we could also talk about potentially the COVID-19 vaccine. So ICARA, our inability to have people take up the services that make them healthier, Flintstone's delivery. So we have to bring Fred Flintstone from the Stone Age to the Space Age, and maybe Outcomes Rocket will help us do that. So what we have for the long, longest time understood that healthcare costs are growing too quickly in this country. Almost all of the discussions in healthcare policy is revolving around provider-facing payment reforms, abandoning fee-for-service to some type of alternative payment models. But it's important to point out that moving from a volume-driven to a value-based system requires a change not only in how we pay for care, but how we engage consumers to seek care. So in terms of our contribution, for too long a time, my colleague Mike Chernu, uh, now at Harvard Medical School and chair of the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, and I have felt quite strongly that the most common patient-facing strategy in this country, that being consumer cost sharing through co-payments, co-insurance, and deductibles, are extremely blunt in the fact that Americans pay more out-of-pocket for all care 
regardless of their clinical value. So they pay more for the services I beg them to do. They also pay more for the services I would suggest that they not use at all. Yeah. And so this becomes, I guess, the issue. So on the one hand, we have a focus on how these procedures are getting paid for. But on the other hand, it's about how we engage with healthcare as consumers. And we've seen a lot of change in the way that we access care and the way that the large players like Apple, Amazon, Google now, you know, everybody's trying to consumerize healthcare in a unique way that maybe will be better for everyone. But what do you think we need to be doing, Dr. Fendrick, around making sure that for paying these these higher prices that we get the actual healthcare outcomes and value. Right. So it's quite clear that prices in healthcare are completely not aligned with the value they create in terms of individual and population health, largely driven by the private sector. We were making headway, though, in terms of getting away from blunt instruments and strict fee-for-service. And then, of course, came SARS-CoV-2 or the coronavirus pandemic, where we saw a dramatic reduction in both the highest value services and the lowest value services and providers of all types from major integrated delivery systems to solo practitioners took a huge financial shock. So good news is low value care declined as well. And we had this really interesting opportunity as a half full guy, I think as you are too, Saul, is that we could turn the COVID crisis into an opportunity. So say we were spending 75% of our dollars on high value services and 25 on low. In the first quarter of 2020, about a year ago, all of those high and low value services went to practically zero. This allowed us an opportunity to rethink our spending and hopefully reinvest more money on the high value services that were underserved and hold providers accountable to keep the low value services that we shouldn't be buying in the first place at really low levels. And this can be done pretty much in three ways, many more, but the top three for me is to continue to push hard on existing alternative payment models that face reimbursement on patient-centered outcomes. So increase reimbursements for services that make people healthier and cease payment or reduce it on known low-value care. Second, which I believe Outcomes Rocket has dealt in the past, leverage the widespread adoption of technology such as telemedicine, electronic health records, and wearables to make it easier for clinicians to order and for patients to have access to high-value services. And the same holds true for deterring access to low-value care. And the third, which is where I've been focusing most of my efforts, is to align patient incentives through cost-sharing and other insurance models such that the value of the underlying service is tied to what the patients pay out of pocket. In other words, the things that you beg your patients to do, please take your insulin, get your colorectal cancer screening, all these disease-modifying approaches, Those should be easy, not hard, for clinicians to order and for patients to receive. For those services that make up hundreds of billions of dollars of spending each year in the U.S. that don't make Americans healthier, payments should be reduced and out-of-pocket costs should be higher. This idea of rob low-value care Peter to pay high-value care Paul, fortunate for us, has not only garnered rare bipartisan political support, but support among the key healthcare stakeholders of which listen to the Outcomes Rocket show. Yeah. So Mark, it's basically what you're suggesting is having a system that incentivizes the routine care that is necessary, primary care focused model, much like, you know, exists in in other countries, very, very much more focused on the primary care and less 
on the specialty care in such a way we will have a healthier tomorrow and less costly tomorrow. I want to be a little more specific about that, Saul, because when I talk about high value services and low value services, I'm sure there are people out there who ask me the question all the time. What do you mean by that? I was wondering it too. I'm glad you you went there. So this is why this has turned out to be so attractive, but also so frustrating and hard to implement. So my three favorite high value services, I'll add a fourth because of where we are in the pandemic. Four favorite high value services, colonoscopy, coronary stent, Hmm. back surgery, and telemedicine. My four favorite high value services. My four least favorite services, Hmm. colonoscopy, coronary stents, back surgery, and telemedicine. So what I mean by that, so when you say primary care, it's my favorite high value service. It's also my low value service, which is why having clinicians involved to determine a high value telemedicine visit, a high value back surgery, a high value coronary stent requires, you know, training beyond an MBA or an actuarial degree. Same holds true for when people say, oh, MRIs are always bad. Well, they're life-saving in some situations. They're wasteful in others. So it's very, very important that we get a bit more granular in terms of how we incent both providers and patients to seek out certain care. So as a primary care provider, I don't want my colleagues to say I'm not all for more direct primary care and investment in primary care, but in the other areas that I care a lot about, such as colorectal cancer screening, we need our gastroenterologists and surgeons to be incentivized to do those procedures. I want to see increases in lung cancer screening for high-risk smokers. So not only do I want to incent my primary care colleagues to refer my patients, but I want to make it attractive for our radiology colleagues to be able to offer this service, which has proved out to be life-saving. Thank you for clarifying. That helps a lot. And so we have a lot of opportunities here in this country to make things more cost-efficient, get better access, and focus on those high-value areas of care Talk to us a little bit about your work and maybe around how you've seen examples of improved outcomes or or better models for healthcare spend. Well, thank you. You know, we have felt for a very long time that if there are any Twitter folks in your listeners, my favorite tweetable soundbite is Americans don't care about healthcare costs like many of your listeners. They care about what it costs them. They care about what it goes to see their clinician, to fill their prescription, and to get a diagnostic test. So prices, which you mentioned earlier, are extraordinarily complicated. They're very lack of transparency currently, despite efforts to make that better. That's for your sophisticated listeners to figure out. The policies I've been working on are taking on the fact that Americans have have to pay more and more out of pocket for all services, and are particularly focused on deductibles, meaning when the year turns over, Americans have to pay oftentimes several thousand dollar family deductible to be able to access over 95% of their services before their insurance kicks in, meaning that my patients have to have a bake sale to afford their insulin, to have a Kickstarter, to afford a drug that was designed to treat her tumor. So we have worked very, very hard to figure out ways to remove these blunt instruments and create a smarter healthcare system which was basically driven by inspiration from my mother, who, when I told her about the idea of skin in the game and making people pay more for healthcare services, she said, I can't believe you had to spend a million dollars to show that if you make people pay more for something, they'll buy less of it. And we have shown, and many others, that as you raise prices to see your doctor, to fill your prescriptions, or to get a diagnostic test, people stop buying the things they shouldn't be buying, which is the whole purpose of cautioning. But they also stop buying the things that we know are important to help. And it should come as no surprise to you, Saul, as it did to my mother, that effects of increased cost sharing were actually borne most seriously 
by people who are economically vulnerable and those with chronic conditions. So since there is a lot of talk among Outcomes Rocket listeners about socioeconomic disparities enhancing equity, we have shown quite strongly that blunt cost-sharing instruments worsen disparities and implementation of value-based insurance design that set cost-sharing on the clinical value of the service, not the cost, certainly decreases disparities, which is why it's hopeful for us that the idea of value-based insurance design, which is one that sets consumer cost-sharing on the clinical benefit of the service, not the price, will continue to grow and its impact among patients who have been unable to access the care they need will be demonstrated in terms of enhanced patient-centered outcomes. Yeah, you know, fascinating. And I think about the trend, you know, and it's troubling, right? I mean, I think I, it was a, a report by Kaiser showing, it was basically like line graph and showed how deductible increases have heavily outweighed, you know, workers' earnings and overall inflation. It's a challenge. And to your point, we have the, um, so the intended effect, you make it more expensive, you use less of it, but the stuff that you really need to be using, you're not using it. So the work that you're doing is focused around making tweaks around it, right? So that must use high value things get used. Right. So many of your listeners probably had not heard of value-based insurance design before today, but I'm hopeful if they're either a provider or a health plan or even a user of the healthcare service, they probably know of our most important policy accomplishment. There was a very small section of the Affordable Care Act that I helped work on, Section 2713, that mandates that all non-grandfathered health plans, which is just about all health plans now, 11 years after the ACA was passed, Mm -hmm. that they have to cover selected preventive services at 100% and pre-deductible. So this is now over 80 services. It includes counseling for depression, obesity, smoking cessation. It includes screening for multiple cancers. It includes the diagnostic tests for hepatitis, for hyperlipidemia, for HIV. It's been extraordinarily popular. It's crossed party lines. And we're extraordinarily proud that it was this part of the ACA that was amended to make COVID testing and vaccines no caution for Americans. So for those hundreds of millions of Americans who received their COVID vaccine for nothing, uh, you could thank value-based insurance design in the small section of the ACA to make that happen. So in preventive uh. services, Saul, we've really, really, really hit the mark. However, as you know, 80% of healthcare services in the U.S. across the board and over 97% of spending in the Medicare program is not on preventive services, but on those management of diagnosed conditions or chronic conditions that we hope will not progress to an important negative clinical outcome. Mm -hmm. So whether it be hypertension, whether it be cancer, whether it be mental health issues, whether it be HIV, we have worked not only to extend low cost sharing for those preventive services, which now all Americans must receive, but we've also worked primarily with the private sector and as well now the Medicare program and the TRICARE program to extend this idea of setting cost sharing limits on high value services to keep them low. Uh, We, in 2019, had a guidance passed by the Department of Treasury encouraging plan sponsors that offer health saving accounts, high deductible health plans, or HDHPs, Mm -hmm. to cover select chronic disease services on a pre-deductible basis. And we were extremely pleased to see the Kaiser Family Foundation employer survey for 2020 show that 50% of jumbo employers 
made some change to their benefit design in their high deductible health plan to make certain services more available, as did 30% of small employers, suggesting that our little drum from Horton here, the here's a who at the Center for Value-Based Insurance Design is being heard in the fact that unaffordable financial burdens are being lifted. The facts all that the typical American has a deductible of $1,000 or higher, and the Federal Reserve reported that 40% of Americans don't have $400 in the bank, suggests there's a rub there coming every January when patients with chronic diseases have to see their clinicians, get their maintenance diagnostic tests, or most importantly, fill their medications that we know they're not filling as often as they would if they didn't have such a high financial burden. Wow. Well, I think this is fantastic. I mean, you said they're hearing my my little drum from over here. Keep beating it, Mark. Keep beating it <laughs> because this stuff is working. And, you know, I appreciate what you guys are doing. And I know a lot of Americans appreciate what you guys are doing. Making this routine chronic condition management care pre-deductible is a fantastic idea. We definitely need to be shifting toward more preventative care versus just reactive care. Like you share the numbers, they're just totally lopsided. And so a step in the right direction, you know, even I just finished my second vaccine of the COVID shot. Yeah, it was free. You know, I didn't even ask me for my insurance card or anything. So thanks to the work that, you know, Dr. Fendrick and his team of colleagues are doing here, we're starting to see some positive light around how we access these types of services. What would you say, Mark, is one of the biggest setbacks you've experienced and a key learning that came out of that? Really your career, you know, and maybe it's about this last legislation. Yeah, thank you for bringing up a point that will raise my blood pressure and and heart rate. So (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure if it's a setback or poignant, but certainly relevant to your listeners, Saul, that as I've been banging the drum with several others to enhance access and affordability and improve equity around high-value health care, it's really important to point out that the services that I beg my patients to do, the services that are on the IRS list of things that should be pre-deductible, all those things are cost-effective, meaning you have to spend more money to achieve more health, but they are deemed to be high value. So every time we say, oh, cover insulin on a pre-deductible basis, uh, while people think that a good idea, there is some actuary somewhere saying, we're going to have to pay for that somehow, either raising premiums on everyone, which is a political non-starter, as you know, or continuing to raise out-of-pocket costs on those with chronic diseases by raising deductibles, for instance, which I call a tax on the sick. So the key learning and what some people call the second coming of value-based insurance design or VBID has been our need to identify, measure, and reduce low-value care to be able to create headroom to cover more generously high-value care. And this Rob low-value care Peter to pay for high-value care Paul uh, was the inspiration for a project that Mike Chernu and I led called VBID X. And it's called VBIT-X because the last administration asked us to create an actuarial neutral VBIT-type plan that covered about 20 services, pre-deductible and zero cost sharing, had the expert actuaries tell us how much more those services would be used and how much they would cost the plan sponsor, whether it be a public plan or private plan. And typically when those incremental costs are looked, either premiums are raised or deductibles are raised. But instead, our exercise was to hold premiums and deductibles constant and instead to raise cost sharing on specific line items of the summary of benefits and coverage, such as population-based vitamin D screening, such as spinal surgeries, which are deemed often to be clinically unnecessary, and to raise cost sharing on certain 
uh, lines in the summary of benefit coverage to be able to make the math work out. And we were very pleased after putting out the template VBITX idea in the summer of 2019 that the federal government put in the VBITX tables almost verbatim in the 2021 final payment rule for federally qualified plans. So there has been a lot of interest for the first time for us to be able to say, we can create a VBID plan that will not raise your premiums and will not raise your deductible. So what it excites me today, Saul, is that the momentum by public and private payers to champion the idea to no longer pay for services that are not making Americans any healthier. The good news for me and the bad news for the payers is this is an extraordinary amount of money uh, giving us opportunities to use tools such as the Milliman Med Insight Healthways calculator to run your claims to see how often people are getting unnecessary EKGs and x-rays before low-risk surgery, how many of your employees are getting high-cost imaging for non-worrisome musculoskeletal back pain when a physical therapy referral will do better. And again, as I said in the introduction, it's all about reallocating more than enough money we have already. And the good news is I can't see that there's any particular provider around who wouldn't be better off by, say, doing more colorectal cancer screening on people between the ages of 50 and 75, where 30% of Americans still need screening, as opposed to doing colonoscopies on people over the age of 85, which is deemed to be dangerous and low value, which can lead to not only incremental expense, but real harm in terms of bowel perforation and other side effects that we would really like to avoid. Yeah, that is exciting. And just to think about how these dollars are being reallocated is part of the challenge. And then also how you operationalize it right in the payment system. But it sounds like you guys are making some good progress. You know, you never want to be introduced to Congress as I was as the tortoise in the healthcare reform race. So (laughs) we've been doing this for a very long period of time. We like to think we don't have a real dog in the fight as an academic center, which is just trying to help patients first, keep stakeholders focused on why they became clinicians in the first place. I like to tell people I did not go to medical school to learn how to save people money. I went to medical school to improve individual and population health. And it's my view that expanding pre-deductible coverage or reducing cost sharing on high value services, uh, paying for those increased utilizations by the identification, measurement, and reduction of low value care will lead to this new era of a clinically driven system where both payment for clinicians and incentives for patients are aligned about health. So, of course, my dream, Saul, is that when a patient and I come to agreement that a certain service is going to be beneficial to their health, it'll be easy, not hard, for me to order and get paid for that service. And my patients would not have to face either substantial financial or logistical barriers to be able to get that care. And as I said, slow and steady, 20 years plus for value-based insurance design, and we're hopeful that we'll be able to continue to move forward. So the good point is your listeners will be able to have access to detailed descriptions of the section of the ACA that makes preventive care free in the Medicare program and commercial plans, as well as lots of information on low-value care, identification and reduction, and the development of VBIT-X on the Center for Value-Based Insurance Design website, which is www.vbidcenter.org. And I'm hopeful that you and I will be able to continue this conversation moving forward. And if there's anything else that 
you'd like to touch on, please ask. Yeah, no, Mark, this has been fantastic. It's great to know that these resources that we've discussed today around the ACA amendment that does provide, you know, these services at pre-deductible, no charge rates is fantastic and step in the right direction. So Mark, thank you for the positivity and the forward movement. It, it doesn't happen overnight thanks to people like you who are getting those benefits. And so I wanna give you a big thanks for spending time with us today. Well, I think to stick with the metaphor, if outcomes rocket helps bring us from the stone age to the space age regarding healthcare delivery <laughs> is extraordinarily time well spent. So. I thank you for the invitation. I hope your listeners uh, take a look at our resources and we'll be able to get behind the DBID movement. Thank you, Dr. Pendrick.